Well, to this point, we've considered the scriptures that show us the conscience is God's watchman and spokesman or witness in the soul. And everybody has a conscience. Everybody needs to obey his or her conscience. We'll look at that in the weeks to come. We noted last week that the conscience is a human entity designed by God to bear witness to right and wrong, to good and bad. I, I mentioned briefly that the conscience doesn't do grayscale. Uh, it operates in realms of black and white. And your conscience does that because it answers to the highest authority it perceives. Next week, we'll look briefly at some of the authorities that shape and seek to inform our consciences, like cultural traditions or religious traditions and teachings. And some, even in the ranks of, of genuine disciples of Christ, would fall into the category of misunderstanding and misapplications of God's Word. So the intention is, is good and noble, but the actual outworking is less than what God desires for us. But for today, we want to operate from the biblical perspective that God is the Lord of every conscience, and His Word is actually what, what defines and determines things like sin and guilt and righteousness and forgiveness. And as you see from this new title slide that appears, we want to dig into scriptures that show us the, the vital importance and beauty of how the conscience can be cleared. But there's only one strategy that's effective, even though there are dozens and dozens of strategies that we as people employ. And so as we open God's word together, I'd ask you to bow in prayer and ask for God's guidance in our study today. Our God and Father, we give thanks to you because you are Lord over all. We give thanks to you because Jesus Christ is King and Savior, and as we noted just a few minutes ago, He is Judge. We give thanks to you as we remember before you, our God and Father, the work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope of this body of believers. It's all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that you are the God who has sought us out, chosen us to be objects of your love, to experience this forgiveness, and we are humbled by that. We confess that we often take that for granted. We are thankful that you sent the gospel to us, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And we are in need of that full conviction today as we open the word together. I thank you for this assembly of saints, for those who have invested themselves so personally and sacrificially in the lives of others, and not just to build an organization, but to build one another. Oh, Lord God, let that continue. We do not know what the, what the days ahead will look like for us, but we are sure that the purposes of our great King have not been altered by any of the recent events, not by a pandemic, not by a political cycle, not by even the internal struggles or failings of our own hearts. Jesus is King, and to that end, we rejoice and make our prayers. We ask that you would so strengthen our faith on this day that we would renew our commitment to Christ and to his mission, that you would empower us by the Spirit, that we may be what you desire us to be, and that we may do all that you have called us to do. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Have you ever stained something so badly that not only were you unable to remove that stain, but it just made that object, that item, that piece of furniture, uh, an article of clothing useless? I think we all have stories to tell, and we have lots of parents in our church who experience scenes like this far too frequently, and if it's not the small feet of a child, it could be the feet of a favorite pet, and often this seems to happen after you've just spent time cleaning your house or even, you know, deep cleaning the carpet, and you walk into a room and you see something like this, and, and you say to yourself, why do I even bother? I saw a picture that I thought, it never goes like that. Now, I'm filling in a gap here, but, you know, in my mind's eye, that little child is part of the reason the carpets are dirty, and moms, you would really sympathize with this, no doubt, that you walk in, and rarely do you look at at something like that as an opportunity to, you know, experience a, a hallmark moment with your child, teaching them not only the wonders of modern carpet cleaning technology, but moving that conversation into the gospel and how willingly God forgives us all of our sins and cleanses our hearts from the soil and grime, just like, we'll clean this carpet, sweetie, and it'll all be okay by supper time. Oh, if we only thought and operated in that kind of gospel mentality more often, we might turn those, those moments into something uh, redeemable. You know, it's one thing when we track mud into the house and stain carpet or furniture or clothing, but it's a completely different thing when we say or do things that we know are morally offensive and then furthermore don't know how to make them right. That image on the screen, I think, graphically portrays how many of us feel in our souls. Oh, we put on a happy face when we come to a place like this on a Lord's Day. We, we put on the smiles or even, even engage in the spiritual talk sometimes with friends when we are together, all in an effort to mask the real crisis in the soul. And that is, what do I do with a, a morally defiled or corrupted conscience? Psychologists tell us that the effects of guilt are both psychological and physical. One article I read this week describes some of those effects in this way. The psychological effects of guilt can actually be beneficial when they aspire a person to make changes in their behavior, but at other times they can cause distress. Research has shown that guilt and depression are often linked Research also suggests that anxiety as well as things like obsessive-compulsive disorder can be related to feelings of guilt or shame. People with unresolved guilt might feel irritable or always on edge. They may be overly clingy or apologetic. Feelings of guilt also often manifest as physical symptoms. Things might in, these might include insomnia or trouble sleeping, an upset stomach, nausea, or other digestive issues stomach pain, muscle tension, head, headaches, and tearfulness. Both realms of the psychological and physical, I'm sure all of us would say, yep, been there, yep, done that. Some of you might even say today, that's exactly where I am at this moment. I'm so thankful to be able to tell you that there really is powerful, eternal hope. 
There really is a perfect and personal remedy, but it comes to us through the Word of God and not some sort of psychological or spiritual exercise that's left up to you to work out the details, but there is a work that God does with a view of the most deeply stained conscience, the most deeply uh, soiled heart. And that's where we want to go to the Scriptures Now, Matt just read a moment ago from Psalm 32, but I actually want to read that together again. So take your Bible, please, and follow along as I read. And I want you to pay attention to the two appearances of the little word Selah. Now, that's like a, a, almost like a musical annotation. We don't typically read that word out loud. It's given for us, we believe, that we would pause and reflect on what we've just read. So we're going to do that as we read through Psalm 32 together this morning. The first four verses comprise that thought that we need to put together. And then you'll notice at the end of verse 4 is that first occurrence of Selah uh, that we'll, we'll pause with. Psalm 32, this is the word of the Lord. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There's some of the physical effects of guilt. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And now David interjects that little note, Selah. Think about that. Does that resonate with you as it does with me? Those last two verses in particular, I think, are the common experience of every human being, not just followers of of Christ. We've all had those moments where we felt overwhelmed by something we did. Some of those memories began very early for us. It's because by nature we are sinners. Even little children have a corrupted nature, and that's why, parents, we never had to train any of them to to lie, to be mean, to be selfish, to act in particular ways that are inappropriate. It continues into adulthood. Groaning. Weakness. Those are some of the characteristics of guilt. Now look at verse 5 with me, please. And a turn in this psalm occurs. David writes, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And now another Selah. Many of us struggle to really believe that last sentence. That God would, in truth and in fullness, out of His grace, out of His mercy, forgive the iniquity of our sin. But this is not the only place in Scripture that this is told to us, written down in the clearest of terms. Now that's the great hope, but let's walk back through the the specific terms referring to a conscience. And I want you to see just a, a couple of terms for our consideration this morning that we would put under the heading of negative descriptions of a conscience. And they're negative descriptions, not because the conscience is bad in and of itself. Remember, it's created by God. Everybody has one. It's designed ultimately for your good and for your joy. But sometimes the conscience is in trouble. And the first word you would see in the scriptures that describes that is a defiled conscience. 
Religiously, in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 7, it speaks to one that's been ceremonially defiled. That is, there's some duty that's been neglected that God said you should do, you didn't do it, so the conscience is defiled. Or you did something that God expressly forbid. A defiled conscience. The second one is actually a seared conscience. This is the conscience none of us wants to possess. It, it speaks of a conscience that has been made insensitive, and, and sometimes you even hear the phrase, seared with a hot iron. What a graphic image that is for us. It makes that particular part of your being insensitive or unfeeling or even unresponsive. The third term that we'll see in, in Hebrews 10 as we come to that in just a few minutes is the, the term evil. And here the writer of Hebrews refers to an evil conscience. It is actually a conscience that's been corrupted by moral evil, moral activity that defies God's law or breaks His commandments. The writer of Hebrews doesn't tell us the specifics of what has corrupted the conscience. He simply states that it is corrupted by evil of some kind. Now that brings us to a, a very important crossroads, if you will, because while most people would recognize that the conscience can be negatively impacted or negatively express itself in particular ways, there, there are many who are unwilling to agree as to what really defines a conscience like this or what makes a conscience this way. And, and it, it, it raises a very specific question. Who determines guilt? And there are multiple answers to this. Sometimes people say, well, I do. I have the right to determine my own destiny and, and the path to that destiny, and I have the right to kind of make up my own rules as I go along. And even in our culture today, people often say, well, that's truth for you. And, and we're trying to be polite, and we do this little cultural dance one with another that says, well, hey, if that's what you want to believe, that's great. Yeah, that's great until someone like Hitler shows up. And if we run that kind of thinking consistently, who are we to say to him that his ideas or opinions about a certain ethnic group or certain classifications of people is morally evil. So it can't be left to the individual. Well, maybe then it is just our culture. You know, if enough of us get together and agree that these are the rules, then, then we can let it rest there. But you really run into a similar problem. Or maybe we say religious tradition, not just tradition, but I would even add the word religious tradition. Many religions in the world, and some of them are driven at the conscience level. We saw another eruption of, of terrorist activity in Europe in the last week or two because people were driven from religious tradition with ideals that said, this person no longer deserves to live. I will take the authority upon myself to end that person's life. Is that valid? Hardly. Or maybe we say, well, just the government. We'll, we'll trust the government. Well, I think you see that there are problems and errors in all of this, and, and from the biblical perspective, it fails to recognize that ultimately it is God who determines guilt because God ultimately is the sovereign authority. God determines guilt. First of all, God defines sin. It's not left up to us as a society to collectively agree, well, these are bad things and these are good things. This is sin and this is righteousness. Now, 1 John 3, verse 4 
explains it in very plain terms. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then listen to this. Sin is lawlessness. I love how Jerry Bridges explains this in his book, Respectable Sins. And if you are not familiar with Jerry Bridges, you should be. He has has passed from this world into the next. He's with our Savior now, but he has written multiple books, so pastorally written, so devotionally set forward, so biblically rooted that all of them, all of them would be worth your time adding to your library. But Bridges said, lawlessness is not just the breaking of a single command. It is a complete disregard for the law of God, a deliberate rejection of his moral will in favor of fulfilling one's own desires. It's hard for us to admit that our lawlessness really is a rejection of God's moral will and his authority, and it's a setting up of our own will as the final authority, but that's exactly what sin is, and that's how God defines it. That leads us to a second point, and that is... God is the one who assigns guilt. If he defines sin, and he does, then he also has the authority to assign guilt. Now, we often think that guilt is a feeling, but guilt is not primarily a feeling. Guilt actually is the fact of having committed an offense or breach of law. There are examples from scriptures. If you go back to the book of of Leviticus, and that's a challenging read, but 35 times in the book of Leviticus, you encounter the word guilt or some form of it. And chapter 4 rolls through a list of what God calls unintentional sins. Concedes the fact that that people have done things that they, they really didn't have a full awareness of how sinful or vile it was. But then he comes into chapter 5 and he begins to explain that when these people realize what they've done, that is, they actually become aware of God's authority and God's law in particular and realize that they have, in fact, committed a sin, they are guilty. And whether they intended it or not or were fully aware or not, because God is the one ultimately who establishes sin and righteousness, and God is ultimately the arbitrator of guilt, it's not left to them. So none of us can just claim, well, I was ignorant. You can't lay that on me because I just didn't know. God not only has the authority to define the standards of righteousness and sin, but to assign guilt. And that's why we go back to that, that second bullet point there, that it's the fact of having committed an offense. The problem is that many of us live as if we get to define our own standards for sin and assign guilt or not. Romans 2.16 says that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So God defines sin and God assigns guilt. Very briefly, you say, well, what am I feeling then? If, if guilt is not primarily a feeling, if it's a fact, but I mean, often we, we wrestle with those strong feelings. Well, when a person is under the conviction of God, I think they're experiencing a couple of things. Remember last week from Romans 2, uh, where God reminded us that even when those who are outside of the faith, they're not staring at the Ten Commandments or opening God's Word, but when they do the things that God commands or they don't do the things that He has forbidden, they, re- they reveal to us that the law is written on their hearts, as Paul says in verse 15, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That accusation within the soul 
often will produce a feeling. And sometimes that's what we say, I feel guilty. Well, that's just the accusation of a fully functioning conscience operating as God designed it. But there is a second thing that that begins to appear in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. Note this for us, and that is the weight of guilt begins to rest on you. That's why you, maybe like David would say, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And as I said at the outset, there are a host of psychological and physical symptoms of a guilty conscience. So while guilt is primarily a fact, it is also true that guilt very often produces powerful feelings, powerful emotions, powerful responses that we don't know what to do with. Could it be that you are actually grouchy and depressed or melancholy and withdrawn, not because it is your personality, but because there is guilt in your conscience that you don't know what to do with. And if you are honest before God today, as you rest under the heavy hand of His conviction, you would have to say that there is moral evil inside that you have not been willing to admit or confess or forsake. You know that the way you treat your wife is an offense to God. You know that the way you disobey and dishonor your parents is morally evil. You know that your habits and inclinations to cheat and plagiarize your way through classes are morally unacceptable to God. You know that your physical involvement with a boyfriend or girlfriend or a co-worker who is not your spouse is sexual sin. Your conscience is functioning powerfully and beautifully. And this is something that will not be remedied by your own devices or your own strategies, but only through God's mercy. And all that you are feeling is actually designed by God to cooperate with that conscience that accuses you before God to get you back to God. So that brings us to this all-important question. How do guilty people clear their consciences? You know, there are a number of strategies, and some of those would include, you can excuse it. I I didn't really mean that. You know, that just slipped out of my mouth, and, you know, we all say stuff we don't really mean. That's an excuse. Or you could deflect it. Hey, I'm not the only one with a problem in this house. Yeah, that'll clear everybody's conscience, won't it? Or you could try to normalize it. This is, there's a huge effort underway in our culture today to normalize so many things that God says, clearly, it's sin. And so we say things like, well, this is the way people are nowadays, so stop being so narrow-minded. Stop being so Victorian. Stop, stop being such a Puritan. Stop being so bigoted. After all, everybody sleeps around. No, everybody doesn't sleep around. And even if they all did, God still says it's sin. And so we create this false narrative to try to normalize sin, which is a a foolish and vain attempt to try to quiet the conscience, but it never works. It's not just a false narrative, it's a false gospel. Sometimes we try to redefine it. Instead of calling it immorality or fornication, we refer to it as hooking up, or, or this oxymoron, serial monogamy. I remember reading that description several years ago, thinking, are we serious? I mean, okay, so I guess it's okay to have multiple sexual partners as long as you're faithful to one at a time? Well, not according to God, right? So we can try to redefine it. 
Instead of calling it pride, we can just say, well, you know, I was born with a big ego, or we can even cloak it under the headings of psychological disorders. I'll agree it's a disorder, but much of what's out there will never be remedied by some kind of psychotherapy or some kind of medication. It actually is sin that needs to be repented of. Instead of calling it sinful anger that offends God and wounds other people, we say, I have an anger management issue. These are attempts to redefine sin to quiet the conscience. And last of all, we sometimes just try to justify it. And there are a number of ways to do that by sometimes just denying it outright. I never did that. Or the the justification specifically would, would be that, well, my motives were good. I'm sorry, this, this is always a telltale sign of self-justification. I'm sorry if you were offended by that. What's that saying? You're the one with the problem. It, it kind of sounds nice and polite. I'm sorry that you were offended by that, that, but that doesn't own responsibility for my sinful words or actions, does it? That's a form of self-justification. And all of this, all of those uh, uh, techniques or strategies for trying to clear our conscience or quiet that nagging accusation of the conscience in the back of the head or, or deep in the soul is, is like trying to say, there's no mud on the carpet. You know, we're trying a new art technique. Hey, everybody, go get your shoes on, walk through the mud, and, and let's uh, stamp this carpet with a whole new pattern and style. At the end of the day, it's still a muddy carpet, isn't it? In need of cleaning. How does God clear the conscience? Well, this is where we need to open the word again. If your Bible is still open at Psalm 32, look at verse 5, because this is the entryway. And, and in a sense, this is, this is all you have to do. This is your part, but it's a very important part. God calls you and me to submit to his authority by confessing our sinfulness. Look at Psalm 32, verse 5 again. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And, and cover could even employ those words justify, redefine, deflect, all of those things we just looked at. Those are all forms of trying to cover our iniquity. But what does David say? I said, I will confess my transgressions. And, and the terminology is important. He doesn't say, I'll, I'll confess I slipped up a little bit. No, he's using very specific terminology to refer to moral evil. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, before we go any further, I want to pause for just a moment and make sure we get this straight. Because it's ultimately God who is offended by our sins, and, and our sin creates a real debt with Him. It's His forgiveness we're in need of. Very often, there are other people that we've offended by our sin, even as we've offended God, and we need to go to them as well. But nowhere in the Bible do we read things like this. Well, you just need to learn to forgive yourself. When I sin, I don't sin against myself. I sin against God first, and likely against you. I've heard people say to me, I remember one brother long ago was really struggling, and he had committed a grievous, grievous sin, and he said, I know God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. And we talked about that for a while. And I, I tried to graciously but, but still firmly say, what do you mean you can't forgive yourself? As if, God, uh, as if you have a more righteous standard than God himself, a higher standard? What, what does that mean? And, and typically what we often mean is, I still feel really bad about what I did. But that's where we need to look at what God does, because in one sense, 
This is your part and my part right here. So let's dig a little deeper into Scripture. Go over to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. In 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sins, that's our part. So there's the submission to God's authority. Confession means I agree with God. What I said, what I did, what I thought, it's sinful. It's morally evil. But now look at this. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. There's an actual washing, cleansing that is taking place. It's by faith that we receive this. It's a spiritual work that God is doing. But look at the words that John uses to describe God in this work. First of all, he's faithful. That means he's trustworthy. You can count on God to do the thing that he promises he will do. Secondly, he's just. How could he cleanse our hearts from sin and guilt when we actually are guilty of it? Well, we know that that's through the cross. We sang of it earlier. This is why we sing hymns like Hallelujah for the Cross. Because something was taking place there of such a significant and immense spiritual nature and work, something we could never do for ourselves, that it brings us from a place of, of guilt and corruption and condemnation into a place of forgiveness and cleansing and life. And for some of you who wrestle with sins in the past that seem so great, so deep, so dark, that you, you really wonder if God could ever forgive you, look at His words. No qualifications given for those who confess their sins. He's faithful. He's just to forgive and cleanse from how much unrighteousness? 80%? 90? 99.9? .9? No, it's 100%. It's all unrighteousness. So God is the one who forgives the sin and the accompanying guilt. Number two, as part of His ongoing work, the Scriptures tell us He really does purify your conscience. Now again, you've got to separate facts and feelings here because sometimes in the feeling part of us is like, I believe God forgives me, but I'm not... I'm not sure I feel it yet. Well, the feelings follow those acts of faith that just look at His Word and receive it in truth as it is. How does God purify the conscience? Well, look at Hebrews 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Verse 14 is on the screen there for you. But listen to verse 13, because in the context, the writer of Hebrews is talking about all the Old Testament ceremony. How the priest would come into the temple or tabernacle and they would offer sacrifices and part of that sacrifice would actually be sprinkled upon the people as the sign of God's cleansing. And so in verse 13, he makes reference to that and says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, that is the, the priest taking some of that blood that had been shed from those goats and bulls and sprinkling it over the people, if the sprinkling of defiled persons uh, with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We need to meditate on that little phrase, how much more? How much more? Will the blood of Christ purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, the word purify speaks of cleansing from, from filth of every kind. It's, it's layered into the prayers of Isaiah and David in Psalm 51. Remember where David said, purge me with hyssop 
and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In Isaiah 1, verse 18, God himself speaks through the prophet, inviting the people, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become as wool. There are four shalls in these two different passages. These are not might or may or possibly will be. No, they are clearly stated of the Lord when he purifies a person, it does accomplish a real cleansing. And when he purifies the conscience, we may know for certain that it really has been cleansed from all defilement. And that little phrase, how much more, stresses the, imp- the incomparable greatness of Christ and his work for us. Specifically with reference to the Old Testament ceremonies. They accomplished a, a, a real kind of of purification or sanctification, if you will, but it was always temporary. That's why the people had to come to the temple or to the tabernacle repeatedly. That's why the priest had to sacrifice goats and bulls and and lambs and doves daily. But Christ offered himself once for all. And you know, when his blood is applied to the evil conscience of people like us, there is a real, complete, and lasting cleansing from sin and guilt. It's hard for some of you to comprehend this, but you need to believe it by faith because the Lord is speaking so clearly here that you can, in fact, be cleansed from the filth and dead works of all sexual sins, of pornography that has so enslaved you, of every immoral thought or deed you've ever done. And he's done it not just that your conscience would be clear, but that you would be positioned to serve the living God. It's the God in whose presence you fear to come, if you're really honest. You're so terrified that God would show up today or that Jesus might return and you'd be caught in this this dark and, and guilty conscience of yours, bound in your sin. You tremble at that thought, but God says, confess your sins. I have the power and desire to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I will cleanse you in such a way that now you can serve me, the living God. Is it possible that you could be cleansed from the filth and dead works of self-righteousness, of arrogant moralism. Some of you have lived your lives as if you, you really believe you're better than everybody else around you, and so God ought to show you a little more consideration and respect at the end of the day, but God is no respecter of persons. And that self-righteousness and that pride is as offensive to him as the immorality of the person right next to you. Could you be cleansed from the filth and dead works? of the materialistic mindset that has driven you up the corporate ladder at the expense of friends and associates and family, neighbors? The word is yes. Cleansed from the filth and dead works of gossip or slander or evil thinking that has been expressed in evil blogging or social media updates of late, these are things we need to be cleansed from and God is speaking in such a way that all of this unrighteousness can be washed away by the blood. Now, if you're in Hebrews 9, or if not, go to Hebrews 10 with me, if you will, and this will be the last reference of the morning, but this is a really powerful one for us, and this is where I want you to note that God clears the record. Look at Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are, who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Now think about this. Let me pause. 
The whole problem with a guilty conscience is that the conscience is bearing witness on behalf of God. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. But now the Spirit steps forward as another kind of witness in God's holy court of salvation. And what a powerful witness He bears. Verse 15, So the Holy Spirit Himself bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's Old Testament prophetic promise. Verse 17, here's the specific witness. This is what will soothe a guilty conscience as it is experiencing the forgiveness and cleansing of Christ. You need that word of assurance, and here it is from the Spirit Himself. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is God's clearing the record. And verse 18, the writer of Hebrews says, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. I stated this before and I'll state it again. I mean, when, when the sacrifice of Christ has been offered, when the witness of the Spirit over this transaction is complete, what else would you and I possibly add to this? Not even your obedience adds to the cleansing that's underway and the clearing of the conscience. Obedience will follow many scriptures that teach us that, but, but not even your obedience or some kind of special sacrifice that you can make. There's nothing. That, that's what the writer of Hebrews means when he says, where there is forgiveness of these, it's so full, it's complete, there's no longer any offering for sin. You gonna bring a goat to church next week? You gonna bring a million-dollar gift? You gonna go feed the homeless this week or do some act of charity that would actually add to Christ's work? It's an impossibility. He clears the record. And finally, He calls you near. Isn't this part of dealing with offenses that, that is so challenging for us? You know, when we really offend one another, this happens in marriages, it happens between parents and children, it happens between neighbors and friends and siblings and I mean, every relationship is touched in this way, but when there's actually grievous sin that erupts, even after you've kind of sat down and worked those things out, extended forgiveness, your hearts are still tender, and sometimes you just feel like, you know, I just need some time alone. Aren't you glad that God doesn't treat you that way? That as wicked and evil, as guilty as you actually are for your sins, that when you confess to Him, when He forgives, when He cleanses, when He clears your conscience, and He clears the record, that immediately He's saying, I'm doing all this that you will draw near. Come back to me. Come, be reconciled. Let me hold you. Let Walk with me. Be in my presence. He really does call you near today. How do we know that? Well, we continue reading in Hebrews 10, verses 22. The, the only reasonable response to this kind of forgiveness and cleansing and clearing is verse 22. Let us draw near. And how do we draw near? Look at these phrases. With a true heart. Not a, not a defiled conscience or defiled heart, a, a soiled or sin-besmirched heart, a true heart. Second of all, full assurance of faith. We're not on probation. We don't kind of like ease into the room with the Lord and, is it okay for me to be here? I really messed up. We've already talked about that. It, is it, I, are we okay? No, he's like, full assurance. With our hearts sprinkled clean. Do we sprinkle our own hearts clean? No, nope, that's God's work, isn't it? He's saying, I've done it. Believe it. 
And then look at this. This stood out to me this week as I was thinking through where we as people typically are. And our bodies wash with pure water. Now, there's certainly an Old Testament allusion uh, to the, the ceremonial cleansing that God's people and priests and such would, would go through. But I want you to think, beloved, because some of you feel so guilty about what you've actually done with these physical bodies. We all do. It's painful. But remember what, what the Spirit himself bore witness to. We really are forgiven. And he said, I cleared your record and your body which, yes, I created in my image initially and intended for you to use for my glory and my glory alone, even though you defiled it, there's a powerful cleansing effect, a washing even there. You see, there's not one part of you that this powerful blood of Christ does not touch. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, so let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. That's what it comes down to. It's not about whether you feel forgiven or not. It's not even about whether you feel guilty or not. Let's deal in the world of facts. And if God says this is sin and what you've done is sin and you're guilty, then you're guilty whether you feel it or not. But likewise, if God says I have forgiven you and I've cleared the record and I've cleansed your conscience and I've done it with a view that you might serve me, then let's live in the world of facts and not feelings, and not all that murky stuff of, well, I, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Stop. That, that's not even true communication. It's not biblical communication. Let's, let's move forward in faith because he's faithful. God wants to move you from this to this. Wide open humility, transparency, joy, rejoicing, willing to sacrifice, willing to lay down my life, but we can do all of that because we know God has cleansed and forgiven and cleared and sanctified. That's the power of his clearing the conscience. As we think it through uh, here at the conclusion, I want you to think, first of all, what sin are you presently excusing, deflecting, normalizing, or justifying? Remember, all those strategies are not only ineffective in clearing your conscience, but they are what keep you from experiencing the powerful cleansing of God. That means you need to take time to think how you have broken his law, how you have offended him. And then number two, submit to God's authority over your life. And specifically, that's expressed as you confess your sin to God and ask his forgiveness. So don't delay. Number four, receive God's cleansing and rest in his faithfulness. He's not even looking for perfect confession today. Sincere, yes. From the heart, yes. Honest, humble, yes. But there are no perfect words. But when you do, then he does his part. So receive it. And then finally, draw near to him. Come to him, first of all, just to say thank you. Oh, Lord God, I, I'm st I still don't feel all of this, but I praise you for the facts. I praise you that I can stand before you today by faith, knowing my sins are forgiven, conscience is cleared, I've been prepared to serve the living God. Me, Lord, yes, you. Oh, Lord, thank you. Draw near in gratitude. Draw near in praise. Draw near to him this week in service. Draw near to him this week in prayer. Draw near through opening the word and reading it. Draw near by serving someone else. Draw near. Let's pray together. Father, the conscience is a mystery to us in certain ways, and yet your word begins to open for us powerful truth, and we praise you that you have created us with this 
aspect of our humanity where there is a voice within that will accuse or excuse. And our desire is that every one of our consciences would first of all be submitted to you and your authority and then tuned to your authoritative word so that we would live out our days with a conscience that is free from accusation, a conscience that is free from guilt, free from fear. But we recognize that many today are wrestling with sins Some have confessed and repented repeatedly and they've just been operating on feelings. Oh, let them see the glory of these powerful truths and move into the realm of facts. May they believe you forgive all unrighteousness and may they move out in faith, leaving the past where it is, leaving it behind, knowing that the record is cleared and they are fully cleansed and prepared to serve you, the living God. And for others of us who continue to seek to justify ourselves before others or normalize our sin or deflect the responsibility and blame or just excuse it outright. Oh God, have mercy and lead us to that place of humble faith and sincere confession that we might experience this powerful cleansing. Spirit of God, would you just descend upon our church family today? Cause us to be the people you desire us to be in order that we may do what you desire us to do. Let your blessing rest upon us in the week to come. The days that are unknown will be full of opportunities to love you with all that we are and to love others. So make us alert to both kinds of opportunities. And let the light of the gospel shine through us. Let the truth of the gospel Be spoken through us. Build your church. Glorify your name until Jesus comes. We pray in his holy name. Amen.